Uh, well, glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to uh, 1 John chapter 3, and I'll uh, catch you up to speed on what we're doing this morning. This is week three uh, of a four-week series, very similar to how we start every year, uh, where we talk about just who we are as a church, what our identity is, uh, and three main things that we hit on is uh, what does it mean that the gospel is the center uh, of our identity and activity, that what God has done through Christ to give us grace and to bring us in uh, is the center point of who we are. Uh, we're gospel-centered people. Uh, and then we're spending two weeks, last week and this Sunday, talking about community uh, or relationships. Uh, last week, we looked at the, the vertical nature of that, uh, that we were created by God in a very unique way. Uh, there, there's a lot of things that set us apart from the rest of uh, God's creation, but one of the things is that God uh, put inside of our DNA uh, a, a relationship that we're relational beings. We were designed by God uh, to be in relationship uh, first and foremost uh, with God himself. Last week we looked at that, uh, that Jesus even prayed for that, that we would know God, not just information, things about him, uh, but relationally know him. Uh, and then today we're going to look a little more at the horizontal nature uh, of just the fact that we're image bearers of God. We were designed for community and deep relationships um, with one another. Uh, next week we'll look a little bit uh, at uh, the, the missional nature of the church, that God has given us something to do, uh, a great commission is what we call it. Uh, and then the week after that, first Sunday of February, I'm so excited we're going to be jumping into the book of First Peter uh, and walking through that verse by verse most of the spring. Um, in First John, uh, chapter 3, um, he, John's going to lay out for us a little bit of just the type of Christian community uh, and Christian family that we were actually called into uh, and called by God to be a part of. Uh, a few months ago, I uh, was very privileged to uh, have a chance to go to a courthouse here in Midland. Um, we have one of our staff members, Chase and Jess, who had been fostering uh, a little girl for quite a while, uh, and through that process and a lot of prayers, they were um, unbelievably blessed to be able to adopt her. Uh, and so we shut down the office and uh, the staff went to the courthouse uh, and we got to witness that adoption of little Anna. And uh, I, it was such an interesting thing. That's the first time I had been in a courthouse when something like that had taken place. Uh, and it was very uh, vertical, if you will. The, the, the judge was asking questions to Chase and Jess about their relationship as parents. And are they committed to uh, loving her and providing for for her just exactly like they would if they were if, if Anna had been born to them biologically. Uh, and just the, you see this unbelievably beautiful thing um, that she was about to have some legal parents uh, and they were legally going to have her as their child. Uh, and that's what most of the proceedings were about. Uh, but if you think about it, there was a lot more going on uh, to that story. Uh, I was sitting next to um, and watching some of her siblings some of uh, Chase and Jesse's kids, uh, and uh, it was just so fun to see that interaction uh, and to know that when Anna was being adopted and getting new parents, that she was also uh, getting siblings. She was walking into a family, and she was going to inherit not just uh, a mom and a dad, but siblings that she would continue to grow uh, and, uh, and love. Uh, adoption 
is a very dominant theme in the Bible. Uh, and not, not just physical adoption like Chase and Jess adopting, but th- th- that's a very, very common metaphor. One of, it seems like God's favorite to express um, the relationship that he has invited us into. So when God has uh, rolled out the gospel, Jesus died for our sins, invited us in. When somebody responds to that, there's, there's a variety of uh, ways that that's expressed. It's uh, we are saved, we are forgiven, we are redeemed. Um, but one is that we are adopted, that God has decided to bring us into his family uh, to allow us, uh, and as Paul would say, to give us the privilege um, to call him our father, uh, and he has committed to us like, like all of the things that, that belong to Jesus we have now inherited as co-heirs with Christ. But as we come to Christ, we are adopted into the family. Uh, we also I- inherit a family, all right? If, if you're a Christian, uh, by virtue of belonging to Jesus as the head of the church, you also have some uh, brothers uh, and some sisters and some crazy uncles. Can I get an Amen. Some crazy aunts, some of you look right now like, I don't see any crazy aunts, crazy uncles. We've said for years, it might be you, okay? If you don't see anybody around, it might, like, when you, when you come into the faith, uh, you not just get God as your father, but you, by God's design, were called into a horizontal uh, relationship uh, to have deep, meaningful relationship and community um, w- with a lot of people, but especially uh, with those in the household of faith or those uh, who belong to Jesus as well. Uh, so John, um, when, when he's writing the book of 1 John, he's looking at those two things. He talks a lot about the vertical nature of relationship with God that he has adopted us into his family. He's our father, we're his children. Uh, but then he, he, he changes gears uh, and he begins to talk about the horizontal nature of that. And, and he spends a lot of time trying to make sure we understand what it actually means that we've been invited into a family uh, with relationships and, and community um, that is part of God's design, uh, not just for us to flourish, uh, but even for us to express God and the gospel to the world. So First uh, John chapter 3, verse 1, if you're there, say ready. ready. Uh, God's word, the Holy Spirit through the apostle John, who was one of the 12 uh, apostles. He's called the one who Jesus loved. He was probably Jesus' best friend on the planet. Uh, he writes to a group of Christians, to some churches, and he says this, Think first, horizontally, sermon from last week, relationship with God. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. So he even uses that terminology of God as the Father. And like he's, like, he, he's asking us to consider just what we've been invited into. God decided to make us his kids. It's no, no small thing. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Uh, he, he's simply reminding us of this um, unbelievably thing that we should never um, grow normal to, um, that God has decided to adopt us. He's given us rights as his children. He's brought us into the family. Uh, but then um, he, he, Paul, uh, John kind of transitions a bit. Uh, so he talks about this, this vertical nature of relationship with God. 
And then he changes gears and he talks a little bit about the horizontal nature. Uh, We're going to skip down to verse 10. John says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Okay, that's not a new concept. Jesus uh, talked very similarly. Uh, you know this. Jesus was highly offensive. Uh, in fact, he would be so offensive, he would get himself crucified. But he said some people were children of God. Some people were uh, children of the devil. And you can tell the difference in who has a different father based on a few things. He says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Wow, right? I mean, he says like there's, there's two different fathers. They have two different families. There's different ways that you can see who truly belongs to God. And he says, if you truly belong to God, if he's adopted you, if you have responded to the gospel, he says you learn to practice righteousness. And then he says also uh, we learn to love our brother. I'll rephrase that a couple different ways. Uh, he's saying if we truly belong to God and our relationship with God is changing us, that has a way that it it changes all of the other relationships. That if we truly understand how God has loved us, it becomes easier than to love other people. If we have realize that God has grace for us, we have more grace for others. If we realize God is patient with us, we have more patience with others. There's a vertical nature that has some horizontal implications. Jesus, he would go so far as to say this in John chapter 13. He says that they will know you're my disciples by your what? By your love for one another. Okay, what he's saying is the outside world looking in, non-Christians looking in on Christians should see uh, th- this, th- this, this strong, loving relationship between Christians that is uh, family-like. It's so familial that they realize that something vertical has happened. Uh, some of you, maybe, maybe you've been watching a lot of football the last few weeks. Uh, maybe uh, the way that the Cowboys didn't show up, maybe you're just done for the season. I don't know. Um, but uh, what you see, if you witness a really incredible athlete uh, doing something really incredible, uh, that, that's like the first thing that you witness. And then if you spend much time thinking about it, you, you realize that there's a lot of discipline, right, behind the scenes. That that doesn't just happen. There's a lot of things that nobody sees, uh, work and discipline and sacrifice, um, that actually produces what you see. But what you see the performance, that's what you see first, right? Let me use that uh, metaphor just for a moment. What what Jesus is saying in John 13 and and John is saying in 1 John 3 is that the first thing Christians or non-Christians see in Christians is our relationships with one another. But if we have love for one another, that that has come from somewhere else. Um, that That's like the discipline behind an athlete. There's a relationship with God that produces something that, uh, that, that Jesus says should be a, a marker for us as believers, should be different about us, should be intriguing to people, this, this family that we have been brought up in. It's the first thing people see. Keep going, verse 11. For this is the message... John says that you have heard from the beginning. 
Okay, he is getting back to the basics. He's not sharing anything new to the church. Chances are I'm not sharing anything new this morning that you don't know, uh, but it is worth a constant reminder. He's like, this is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. He, he's, he's, he's shifted from being adopted by God to like, like, this is the most basic thing we've been commanded. We've got to love each other. Like, we need to love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Do y'all see how connected it is for John that like this horizontal love and relationships we have is birthed out of a love and he, he would even use that as the litmus test. Do y'all remember a litmus test? I was just reminded of so many things because these last few weeks for us uh, has been science fair projects uh, at school in the Hatch House. Uh, and I re remembered back uh, in the day when I was growing up, we did a science fair. And one of the science fairs that I did was a litmus test. And, and you can look at a liquid, not really sure what it is, but you put the litmus paper in there, you pull it out. It will tell you whether it's a, an acid or a base, right? Uh, look, John says one of the litmus tests to know if we truly are in the family is what? If we have love for the brothers, verse 14, we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Jesus would say that. He would equate not just murder as an action, but that shows something that's taking place in our heart. It says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Here it is again. By this we know, love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, vertical, so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. God has been about building a family. He has been about the, the, the work of the gospel, Jesus on a mission to rescue sinners, to forgive us, to adopt us into the family. But, but by adopting us, we also inherit a, a, a horizontal family where we're supposed to uh, truly express the love and the heart of God. Uh, so the, the church, and I, I want to get into some, some, some cultural polls that we have because I think sometimes we underestimate just how influenced we are by the culture around us uh, because we were, we were birthed into a certain culture uh, and that has certain values and sometimes we don't even think about how strong of an effect that those have on us. Um, it, culturally, there are some things that are really pushing against God's design for the church, right? God's design for the church is for it to be a gospel-centered, missional family. And, and sometimes we, we're so, we live in such a consumeristic culture and society, uh, we can bring that into the church, and that hinders us truly being able to know and to love each other and to build a deep sense of, of friendship and community, which is what God is after. Uh, and I want to talk for a minute because uh, the church was not designed to be an event 
that uh, it was not designed to just be a service where you come and uh, listen to information. It was not desi- designed by God uh, to be a place to attend, um, but truly was designed by God to be a family where you belong. Why? Why is that, and how, how does the... the not just the message of the gospel or connection with God, but relationships truly fill a need in humans that we have been designed for. Okay, so I want to take a moment to talk about loneliness um, because really true gospel community is the antidote to loneliness. And loneliness is a huge, um, it's a human problem. It's an American problem. It's a challenge that many, many people find themselves in. And it's helpful and healthy for us um, to have a a good theology of loneliness. Um, Then we understand a little bit more in depth God's design for community. In a sense, we can't really uh, understand how something is fixed unless we understand how it's broken. Uh, so I want to share a few things about uh, loneliness. Someone that I read recently, a psychologist, said that it is the most universal human experience. Like if you look across the globe and across time, the most universal human experience is that every human on some level at some time has experienced some level of loneliness. So maybe you feel that this morning. Maybe you feel a sense of loneliness. If that's you, my prayer for this morning is that God would stir you up to help find a place in the family of God where you can know and be known and truly belong. And if that's not you, some of you may say, like, I'm just, I'm not lonely. I've got good community and good friends. Then my prayer for you this morning is that you might be the answer to someone else's prayers, uh, that you might be the community that someone else is looking for. But... Um, Adam, I'm going to reach back. I'm not going to uh, go all the way back uh, and, and work our way through the whole book of Genesis. But we do often because you look at God's design in Genesis and you see the first few pages of Genesis is uh, Adam and Eve as God designed them to be before there was sin that had broken everything. Uh, and what you find in the early pages is that Adam was lonely uh, and that was not good. I think it's uh, Genesis 2, 15, 16, 17, somewhere around there where it says that it's not good for man to be alone, but that, that was before sin. Why is it? Why, why is it that the first bad thing in all of creation was not sin, was not murder, was not lying. It was this sense of loneliness. And that, that, that not good nature of being alone was not attributed to sin. Um, it was the fact that something was missing. Okay, something was missing and it wasn't Adam's relationship with God. He had that. They walked together. They had a relationship. But there was still an element of friendship, companionship, community, whatever you want to call it, that was missing, that that was part of God's design for Adam and uh, and obviously for you as well. And it was something that, uh, like, the animals could not fill that void. Do do you remember reading that where he's, like, feeling lonely and he's kind of looking around at the animals and he's like, none of them will do, Right? dogs, like, goodness, dogs are awesome. They can't fill this void. Cats, no way. (laughs) Goats, you know, they're maybe at the top of the list. But like, he even looks at the animals and he's like, golly, this is cool to have some pets, but they don't fill the hole of relationship that Adam had. He was designed for relationship. He was not designed by God for loneliness. 
Um, I, I read something interesting this week. Uh, Matthew Lieberman, who was a, a Harvard grad, and he's a professor at UCLA, a uh, very interesting psychologist. Uh, and I don't believe that he's coming at this from a biblical worldview, but he is looking at humanity uh, just through studying people. And he said something very, very profound. I, th- I think it's totally true. He says that our need to, to connect relationally with others is just as fundamental as the human need for food and water. Okay, Keller, Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller said this. He said, Adam was not lonely because he was imperfect. He was lonely because he was perfect. The ache for friends is not the result of sin. It's the result of our design by God. God is a relational God. Before he ever created man, woman, the earth, he lived in perfect, constant relationship. God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're in perfect relational community together, always have been, always will be. And we were given that, that relational DNA by God. And so the ache for like deep connection with people, marriage, friendships, it, it's not, it doesn't reveal that something is wrong. It reveals that something is missing according to our design. Uh, last couple things before we keep going on what this means for us. Uh, loneliness is not the same as physical isolation. Loneliness is a relational thing, not a geographical or physical thing. Right, you, you can be uh, alone physically for a few moments and not lonely. Uh, I accidentally went on a trip to Alaska for a week by myself um, a couple years ago. Uh, the, the trip itself was not the accident. The going alone was the accident. Uh, the guy that was going with me, the day we were leaving, got called out and had to go to work. So I ended up in Alaska in a tent uh, with the grizzly bears by myself. Fantastic. A little bit nerve-wracking. I was, I was alone, but I wasn't lonely because I got relationships, right? And the other side of that is you can be physically in this room surrounded by a lot of people and you can be lonely because it's not a physical thing. It's a relational thing. And I've shared these stats so many times over the years. Um, The average American is incredibly lonely. And those stats go up if the, the younger you are or if you're male. Uh, so, like, there, there's something in our culture that is pushing us away from the way that God designed us to connect with one another. So, what is the, the cure? What's the answer? What's the remedy for loneliness? Uh, and you might say, well, the answer is don't be alone, right? Maybe, but it actually goes much deeper than that. Um, the, the most universal experience in human condition that existed before the fall, loneliness, the answer to that is not just not being alone. The answer to that is true communion, true relationship with God, with one another. Uh, three questions that I want to, to answer, uh, and then the third one is going to give us a lot of um, different subpoints to kind of think through. What, what, what do you actually do with this? What do we actually do with this uh, invitation that, God, that John's given us uh, to, to truly love the brothers and have this horizontal relationship? Three questions. What is God trying to build in us? Uh, second question is, what are the cultural challenges uh, or the currents that might move us away from that? And then third is, how can we live this out? So what is God trying to build, trying to do with Christians in the world? I make the case, he is building gospel-centered, missional families. He he is building people centered around the gospel that are living their lives on mission, that are deeply connected with each other. That's why the the New Testament uses familial family terms, 
for Christians, the inside of a local church. We're not just acquaintances. We're not friends. We're brothers. We're sisters. We belong to the same family. That's what God's trying to do. He's trying to produce in us this, this love for him that spills out in love for others and meets a need that the human soul has. What are the, the, the cultural challenges uh, or the currents? If, if God is trying to build a true Christian community, what is the counterfeit to that that is the, the, the current and the flow of the culture that if we're not aware, we, we don't know that it's kind of at war with trying to, to, to experience and build what God is after. Now, I would make the case that God is trying to build and he is building Christian community, but what our culture is mainly, it's a consumeristic culture. Agreed? One person? I just need one. Okay, thank you. Like, like we can't underestimate how, how deeply our culture affects us. So we live in a consumeristic culture, which is about me. Like, it's about what I need. It's about, um, like, the customer is always right, uh, your way right away. Uh, we're wired to consume uh, everything about uh, all the advertisement around us, wires us to be dissatisfied with what we have and to try to go find something else to consume. Um, it, we're wired for Listen, productivity over relationships, that's why so many people struggle to find really deep connection because the God of our age is productivity and making money, even if it's at the cost of having time to build solid relationships. Our culture has taught us, no, we need to be about the almighty dollar, and productivity is the goal, and what's sacrificed often on the altar of productivity is relationships. Why is it that Americans are so lonely? Well, that's part of it. That's part of this culture that we were born into. Um, the consumers uh, were designed to be consumers in a crowd. And so what that means is we come to a group or come to a crowd thinking, what can this do for me? And the moment it stops meeting my needs, I'm out. And I'm not showing up to, to give or contribute. I'm showing up to take and consume. We were all born into this culture. The problem becomes when we, when we bring that same mindset into the church, what do you have? You can very easily still have a cultural mindset and, and, and a consumer-driven idea, we just bring it to church. We're like, okay, I'm here. I need somebody to meet my needs. The moment they don't, I'm out. We, 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 we can't underestimate how much our culture has changed that. that just, it, it sabotages God's plans for the church from the beginning. So like, like that's a challenge. So this is the crowd mentality. A crowd is a group of people that use a group for themselves. Uh, and Jesus dealt with crowds. Uh, every time he preached, there was normally a crowd that would assemble. Uh, and he was, he, he was trying to turn that crowd into a true community, a true family. Um, the crowd shows up only to get something, uh, not to give something. Uh, the crowd shows up and says, well, I'll do X if I get something in return. As soon as I don't get that, I'm going to stop doing that. And everything in our culture bows to just simply the happiness of self. And we'll use even the church to try to meet that need. But what, what God is trying to accomplish through the gospel is so very countercultural to that. 
Uh, It's a group of people that uh, treat the the, the church as a family where we come not just to take, um, but we show up to give, we show up to serve. Um, The health and the good of of the church and others is even higher than the the, the health and uh, the benefit of ourselves. Um, And then the last question, I want to pose this question again. This is not going to be really anything new, but just an unbelievably helpful reminder for us as believers. The question is, how can we live this out? You go back, spend some time in 1 John 3, looking at how important it was to John that we love each other. Then how do we live that out? And I'm going to reach back, and I've done this before, probably will not be the last time, uh, but I think the most helpful way uh, for us to think practically about how do we truly live out this calling we have as a missional family, uh, it's to seek to obey what the, the Bible lays out as one another's. Everybody say one another's. This is, uh, if you're new, maybe you've been here about the last two years, maybe you haven't uh, walked through some of this with us, but uh, if you've been around a while, you have, and this uh, is going to be somewhat of a reminder. Uh, John himself was kind of the master of repetition, so uh, it just it, repetition is not a bad thing. Y'all have heard the story when the Apostle John was an old man. He's the only disciple that lived into an old age uh, because the rest were martyred. They tried to martyr John. He survived boiling in oil, and then he would end up as an old man uh, preaching often uh, in the church in Ephesus. And church history says that when he was preaching, um, somebody would have to help him physically up to uh, the place where he would speak and that he would just say the same thing every time, like they knew what John was going to preach. They said he would just show up and he would just say, brothers and sisters, love one another, love one another, love one another. If you do this, you've done it all. And so like he's the master of repetition. We can never get away from reminding ourselves the basic things. Uh, So I am not going to work through all 59 of the one another's. Amen? But I will work through six of them. I think these six commands that God has given to the church uh, to obey and respond on a horizontal level are so incredibly important and they're worth reiterating um, that we're going to work ourselves through. And I wonder, um, well, I want, I want to, to lay these out and consider you to think through these and, and ways that you can be, be shaped by God, moved by the Holy Spirit to do these, okay? Because here's what happens if, if I even come and, and present these things to you, and we have some of the cultural mindset that we have, what we tend to do is grade others on how well they're doing those things for us. Like, that, it shows how deeply rooted these things are. So I don't want you to think how well somebody else is doing these for you, although I'm sure that's a valid thing. I want us to all come to this thinking through what can we do to contribute and each one of us to obey these things. Sound good? Everybody say ready. Everybody say one another. All right, number one, command by God. This is like the one another that girds up all of the other one another's. Love one another. Everybody say Love. I mean, John just will never get away from this. That was just the theme of his song, love one another. This is, he, and he got it from Jesus, okay? John chapter 13, uh, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. He's not talking to everyone. He's talking to believers, to Christians. Jesus commanded us to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another, 
By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. That word is agape, the, the word for love. There's multiple words that are used for love in the Bible. This particular one means selfless. There's sacrifice. There's action. It's not a feeling. It's not a warm fuzzy. We have been commanded to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others, to love one another in an action-oriented way. Okay? It, like, true love in this capacity will cost something. It, it requires sacrifice, and sometimes we bring our cultural mentality. So, of course, I'll love my church family until it costs me something. <laughs> like, then I don't want to do it anymore. Like, well, that just, it kind of shows we, we, we missed the entire point of the love that Jesus had for us, which was not a warm, fuzzy feeling, but it was a sacrificial, action-oriented, laying his life down for us. Why? So that we might lay our lives down for the brothers. Love one another. Be, be committed to the best in others, even if it costs something, even if it requires sacrifice. Number two, serve one another. Everybody say serve. That flies in the face of a, of a culture that's designed to be served. Jesus said, listen, that's not how this kingdom works. Even Jesus himself, he says, I didn't, I didn't come here to be served. I came here to serve, and my people are going to be like that. Paul says in Galatians 5.13, he's speaking to Christians. He says, you were called to, to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Consider this, on Jesus' last night, he knew it was his last night. Uh, I wonder if we knew it was our last night, what we would do with our time. What, you know, would we, um, would we try to go on a last-minute vacation, try to check off one last thing uh, on our bucket list? What Jesus spends his last few moments is uh, washing the feet of his disciples, setting an example of service. Uh, so my question for you is, like, is God shaping you into a servant that wants to serve other people? Sometimes there's nothing we get in return. It's for serving. But I'll tell you this, by God's design, if everyone in a church shows up to serve and to give, everyone's needs are met. If everyone shows up to be served, it's a disaster. If everyone shows up saying, what can, what can you do for me today? Nobody's there to give. There's frustration. But if everyone shows up as a servant Generally, the needs are met because you have an army of servants trying to outserve one another. Where can you serve? Who can you serve? How can you serve? That's worth asking the question uh, because we've been commanded that. Number three, encourage one another. Everybody say encourage. True or false, the world can be a discouraging place. Job can be discouraging. Sometimes family can be discouraging. The news can be discouraging. An election year can be <laughs> discouraging. Um, they're part of God's design is for uh, Christians to live in the world and to come back to the family and be encouraged. To, to simply be, 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 be lifted up and, and spoken into and encouraged. Uh, this is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. Therefore, encourage one another. It's a, it's a command that we've been given, and build up one another just as you are doing. I forget who said it, but it is true. Uh, someone said, you will just never meet someone that is suffering from over-encouragement. 
You'll never meet a parent that's just like, I just can't handle any more encouragement. You'll never meet a boss. You'll never meet a, a, an employee. You'll never meet a, a, a student. You, you'll just, you'll never meet someone that has had just, I've had too much. I've had enough. Don't even try. It's like life is discouraging. It was discouraging for Paul. That's why he c- commands this church, listen, encourage one another. Number four, stir up one another. Everybody say stir up. You knew it was coming. Um, We had some apple cider uh, that was like the spiced apple cider. And if you leave it too long just sitting, then all the spices go to the bottom. What do you have to do? You have to stir it up, shake it up. I, I love this story because it makes some of you cringe. It's very similar to the sippy cup that we left in the back seat of my Tacoma that had milk in it. And it was in there for about a week in the summer heat. And what happens when you get the milk in the sippy cup in the summer truck? It separates, right? It gets chunky, so you have to stir it up before you drink it, right? Like this is what Hebrews would say of Christians, that sometimes we have a tendency uh, to settle, to kind of forget that we're on mission, to get lazy, and to, just to like not be doing what we're supposed to be doing. And so there's a command. Uh, Hebrews 10 says this, let us consider how to stir up one another. It's, it's one of the one another's, how to stir up one another towards love and good works. Why? Because sometimes we gravitate towards just kind of coasting and doing nothing, and we need each other to say, hey, you should share the gospel with somebody, it, like serve somewhere in the church. You should be like, we need to be stirred up when we get settled down towards love and good works. Not neglecting, he says, to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Number five, show hospitality to one another. Everybody say hospitality. First Peter 4, 8 through 9 says, Above all, keep loving one another, there it is again, earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Did you know there was a command in the Bible? Actually, multiple commands uh, for you to show hospitality, to open your home and have people over for a meal. It's one of the most simple, basic, and beautiful things you can do. Uh, we talk about it often. We push people. We've got, uh, for all you community group leaders and, and hosts in the room that do that consistently, praise the Lord, thankful for you. Don't neglect to show hospitality. Don't neglect consistently opening your home and inviting people in. Last one, bear one another's burdens. Everybody say burden. Everybody said it. Everybody has some. The, the only way, really, that you can help the people, because everyone in this room has burdens of some sort. And God has not designed us to be lonely so that nobody knows about and nobody is helping with our burdens. We're a family where people know what's going on and they help shoulder the burden. Like, even hospitality helps with that because sharing meals, you, you learn some of the burdens that people are carrying. So I want to encourage you to consider how you might uh, share burdens that you have and let someone else step in and help you carry those. Or as you learn the burdens that other folks have, find ways to step in and to help with those. Uh, Some have just incredible burdens of fear. Some have deep grief that they're carrying, pain, loss, uh, money challenges, relational problems, marital stress, emotional problems, addictions, uh, problems with kids. They're tired. They're discouraged. There's a lot of burdens, and we were not designed to carry them alone. Galatians says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
We are a family. Because we belong to the same Father, God has made us family, and we've been given some one another's last thing, and I'm done. Jesus, and this all, everything we do comes back to the gospel, so we're not just talking about a healthy relationship. This flows from the gospel itself. Jesus himself endured some loneliness that you and I will never experience. He was betrayed by one of his own. He was denied by one of his own. He was abandoned by all the rest. And even on the cross, the Father himself turned his back on him. He was utterly and completely alone. Why? He, was, he suffered the depths of loneliness so that through him we never would have to. That he would rescue us into a relationship with God, into a relationship with others. God's producing this beautiful thing through the church. It's a gospel-centered missional family. I want to invite you to find your place to belong. Let me invite you to bow your head, close your eyes, let's pray together. Father, I do not take that term lightly, that you have given us the right and the privileges to be called your children, to speak to you as our father, to look to our older brother, Jesus. God, we, we recognize that you love us, that you have adopted us, that you have given us an incredible inheritance. I pray that you would help us to live out our calling as your family here in Midland. I pray as we love one another, well that the world around would look and will know through that that we are your disciples. Father, I pray for anyone in this room that is just lonely and isolated. I pray that you'd help them to find not just friends, but deep Christian community. God, I pray that you would help those of us in the room that belong to you to find places to continually serve and to carry each other's burdens. And I pray that you'd help us to truly fulfill the one another's that you've given us. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you endured a deep level of loneliness so that we don't have to. You've rescued us into relationship. Jesus, we love you. I pray these things this morning all through your name. Amen.